The Black and Gold Banneret Podcast is brought to you by the Sam Unger Real Estate Team, powered by EXP Realty, proudly serving Orange, Seminole, and Lake Counties. Call 407-790-9957 or visit samsellsorlando.net. What's happening tonight, fans? Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez with you. Eric, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you very much. Happy birthday to me. It's uh, the five days of ELO, as I like to call it, between my birthday <laughs> and Christmas Day. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so what do you want for your birthday? Do you want Tell me the truth. Do you want a UCF win? I want UCF wins, plural. I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't see the Peach Bowl's coming up. Everybody's focused on that. But I'm not one of these people that, it that puts all their eggs in one sport or one uh, event. Uh, I want to see wins across the board. Uh, all right. So that's kind of what I hope for every year for UCF and UCF sports in general. So uh, Peach Bowl would be great. But uh, I was happy with UCF basketball beating Stetson. I want them yeah. to keep winning uh, and then look forward to the spring and, and et cetera. So I, that's what I wish. We've, well, we've got a little bit of that to talk about. Got a little bowl preparation to talk about as well with uh, UCF football getting ready for the Peach Bowl. Uh, I got a great interview for us on this show. Jimmy Frizzell, former UCF football wide receiver from 1999 to 2000, joins us. Um, that 2000, or 2002, I should say. That 2002 team uh, is, uh, you look at the UCF record books, they're all over the place. And they were the ones who were, unseated um, by in, in a lot of different record categories by this 2017 uh, UCF football team. So I talked to him about that, uh, his uh, career post-UCF as well. Um, great, great conversation with, uh, with a really great football, uh, former UCF football player. So be sure to listen in for that. We also got some news to get to with um, the sudden firings of uh, – Jeanette Bolden and Johnny Gray, the uh, coaching staff for UCF Women's Track and Field. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, first, let's dive in to uh, UCF football's preparation for the Peach Bowl. So uh, today, uh, we're recording this Wednesday night, December the 20th. Busy day, busy week on campus for UCF football because today was the first day of the early signing period. So uh, UCF signed 12 prospects, seven of them from the state of Florida. One of them, uh, Eric Seidelman, uh, a local prospect out of Bishop Moore. So uh, one coaching staff, uh, at least, um, Josh Heupel, has uh, a, lot of his, uh, a lot of his early work done um, for, uh, for, uh, for, UC- for UCF in terms of recruiting. So, um, so he's over there in one office taking care of that. Meanwhile, in another office on campus... Scott Frost is busy at work preparing this year's football team for the Peach Bowl against Auburn on New Year's Day. Um, Eric, you and uh, Murph spent some time with UCF football over the past couple weeks, checking out practice, stopping by, uh, and seeing actually Coach Frost at what's probably his only press conference um, before the team heads to Atlanta. What were your thoughts heading uh, as you headed as you as you actually got a chance to? speak to coach frost uh after practice well murphy yeah a group got there on tuesday last chance to talk to coach frost here in orlando before he obviously the team goes to atlanta next week for the peach ball and uh, i was a fascinating fascinating presser 
for Frost talking about a number of topics, talking about the early signing period and the and the impact that's made, the fact that he's preparing one team for a bowl game while recruiting for another school and during this early signing period, which is very unique. But I think the big takeaway, and we're going to play it here, Scott Frost addressed people that for, have questions about Scott Frost's dedication to the UCF team in this bowl game and to the players and uh, the fact if, if him and his staff are prepared, you know, going to prepare this team or they're just going to uh, kind of, you know, mail it in, if you will. And, I, and he took great exception to some of the critiques of that. And, and it was a fascinating, uh, uh, one of the most fascinating, I think, pressers for Frost. And he, he made it very clear. He is 100% committed and locked in and getting his team prepared to try to win this Peach Bowl. I don't know if it's been done. Uh, I know I heard Urban Meyer coached Utah uh, after he left Utah back in the day. I, I sat behind Dave Doran at the awards show, and he said one of his bigger, biggest regrets in coaching was not coaching Northern Illinois in the bowl game when he went to North Carolina State. Um, the thing that has changed this year is the early signing period. You know, most of the time in years past, the coaching changes haven't happened until probably this past week. And uh, then you still have quite a bit of time to get a signing class taken care of. And there's a lot more urgency out there this year uh, because if you don't get in on some of these kids, a bunch of them are going to sign Wednesday. Uh, so that has changed things. And I don't know if they thought about coaching changes when they changed that rule, but it has made it harder. Um, at the end of the day, uh, I don't care what other people have done. I want to do what's right by these guys, and our whole staff being here coaching them gives them the best chance they could possibly have. Scott, you are writing a manual on how to do this. How did you figure out an itinerary on going and recruiting and also juggling with your You know, we are kind of figuring this out as we go along, but you know, there's been a lot of narratives out there, and they're all wrong, and sometimes we don't have the chance to correct them. Um, I misspoke at the press conferences my 10th uh, New Year's Day Bowl or National Championship as a player or a coach. And I can tell you, uh, every single time I was a receiver coach in Oregon and we had the practices we had last week, uh, I was never there. I was out recruiting. And the practices basically happened with the head coach and the GAs. Um, those three practices we had last week were necessary to make sure we shook the rust off and we stayed in game shape. But there's not a staff in the country that had, if they're getting ready for a bowl, would have their entire staff there. And we made a commitment to have the majority of our staff here because we wanted our kids to know we were committed. Um, if we hadn't been on the road recruiting for somewhere else um, and things hadn't changed, we would have been on the road recruiting here and there probably would have been fewer people at practice. Um, so I want to make sure people understand that. Uh, not throwing anybody under the bus, but I guarantee Tennessee's new coach hasn't been at Alabama's practices and shoot, Josh Heupel hasn't been at Missouri's practices and Willie Taggart wasn't at Oregon's. We're here because we care about these kids. We want to do what's best for them. So, what's the narrative? I'm sorry, what is the false narrative? You know, I, I just understand that I, I think people think we're not committed to this. You know, I, I was on a plane on Tuesday to California to recruit and got back at 6 in the morning so I could be here with these guys. And a lot of the guys on the staff have been doing the same thing. Um, Auburn hasn't didn't practice for this game until Saturday. We practiced Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with almost an entire staff. Um, so, you know, a lot of that stuff's not out there, and I understand um, some of the frustration, but I, I can promise you that our staff is, is dialed in and, and ready to do absolutely everything we can for these kids. Uh, you're right. I, I do say, you know, I have no reason to believe that 
um, that that Scott Frost and his staff are not locked in on winning this bowl game. Like we've said this, one of the themes that we've always said, you know, for very you know, in, in basically all sports, is that you know athletes and coaches, because many of them are former athletes, are masters of car- compartmentalization. Um, you know, the concept of distractions is a media created excuse. Uh, and it, there really is – that holds really no water. Um, I have every reason to believe that Scott Frost is, is, telling, <laughs> is telling the absolute truth that, yeah, God, we're locked in. Uh, we, we figure this out. We're all adults here. We're all professionals. We know how to figure it out, and we've got this. Um, and anyone who thinks that we're not dedicated to this team is out of their flipping minds. Um, and he's been with this team for two years. He's developed. A, he and the staff have developed very close ties with these players. I think the players get it. Um, and uh, and and they're and and he's t- and they're taking advantage of this opportunity. And you know, on the other and the other thing was that it, this. If you're Scott Frost, right? We've talked about this, you and I. Why would you take the risk of losing your final game as UCF's head coach when you're already going to Nebraska? We get it, right? Um, why, would you, why would you take that risk if it would only benefit you, right? That doesn't make any well, sense. That's, no, which is funny. Like, I've gotten arguments with people and specific people recently, and they're asking, you know, Oh, who? Oh, who? Do tell. I, I'm not going to mention names, you know. I'm not going to mention names. You, you, you know, people you, you maybe people have I heard know? them. Okay, okay. Yeah, you people you know. Uh, and, and they talk about, oh, he's in it for himself. And Scott Frost is in this for Scott Frost. I'm like, how is he benefiting from this? Yes, you know, because here's the deal. If he coaches this game, he really – if he loses, he's going to get full blame, right? Everybody's going to blame. Oh, I see you were distracted. You didn't care. You weren't prepared, which is nonsense. You know, right. It might be that the other team was just better that day, but whatever. Um, so people are going to blame. If he doesn't, the easy thing for him would have been not to coach this game. Hey, I can't do it. I can't coach because he looks good anyway. Hey, if he doesn't coach the game and they win, well, that's the team he, you know, they built. If they lose, well, if Scott Frost was there, they would have won that game. So, that would have been the easy thing to do if he really wanted to be worried about himself in that regard. He didn't. He's going to want to try and win this game for his team. And quite frankly, uh, from a UCF standpoint, this gives him their best chance to win the Peach Bowl, which I believe is the goal. Last I checked, um, you know, and somebody was telling me, well, Troy Walter should be the one that's coaching on this game. I'm like, why? Why is he different? He's not. He's last I checked. He's also a Nebraska coach now. Uh, so why is that different that Troy Walters be the head coach? I, I don't understand that one just because he was named interim coach for briefly. Um, so it just doesn't make any sense to me. These guys are competitive people. Uh, they want to finish this. They want to win the Peach Bowl. They want to go 13-0. They want to give the players the best shot to do it. So I applaud everybody involved for doing this. Is this the easiest, smoothest thing? No, it's not. But uh, I think all parties – made the best decision in everybody's best interest. Uh, I don't believe the nonsense that people are saying, well, this is a, the, the telecast on New Year's Day is going to be a Nebraska infomercial. Well, it's going to be that way whether he's, in the, whether he's in the sidelines, whether he's in the press box, whether he's in Lincoln, Nebraska, or whether he's in Europe. They're going to talk right. about him in the press. Heck, um, I recently rewatched. I watched the UCF Memphis game because uh, I DVR'd the game. Obviously, I was at the game. You watched it on TV, so you knew about it. 
I mean, they they were talking about him in Nebraska in that game, and that wasn't even official at the time. Right. So I think it's hilarious how Frost gets blamed for Brett right. McMurphy breaking the story while Frost is out there on the field. Right. Really? Do you exactly. think that he called up Brett McMurphy like during a commercial break and said, hey, Brett, I'm going to Nebraska? No, I, 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 everyone needs to stop blaming Scott Frost. For how well, that went down, because this is, this is my thing. This yeah. is my thing, and and I want your thoughts on this. Okay. For the people, and, and and let me just. There's a few points here. We got a great audience that tunes into us now, you know, every week. It's growing, you know, episode by episode. We got great sponsor in Sam Unger. Uh, uh, it's grown, right? Would you agree? And we're on. Like, I mean, yeah. people can listen to us on SoundCloud. They can listen to iTunes, right? I mean, everything's great. Okay. And, and let's acknowledge our friends at Nightline. All right. Trace and Andrew, they've got a great thing going over there. They've got a great audience. They do the live post-game uh, deal there, and they do the Sunday night stuff. Usually they record. And they've got a great audience. I know their audience has grown. That being said, all right, now that we've all patted each other in the back, <laughs> as great you know, as great as this is, right, I think you would even agree with this. The audience that is listening to this podcast, that listens to their podcast, is the is in the minority? It's the diehard fans, yes, but also the minority uh, as far as the UCF fans that I, I think are they're, they're the ones that are invested every day, right? They're the ones that are interested in all this gossip. I think the majority of the UCF fans a don't really know what's going on behind the scenes in this stuff and the gossip, nor do they care, right? You know what I mean? And and the per, and here's my proof on that. Um, the championship game against Memphis, right? That whole week, right? I think it was pretty much if you were in the inside, if you were a diehard, if you're listening to this show, I think you pretty much knew that Scott Frost was going to Nebraska that week, right? Would you agree with that? Would you agree? And, and I'm talking other uh, people that listen here. It's pretty, much, listen, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion. People, if, you, if, you're, if you're a member on the dungeon on UCSports.com is another example in this. Um, you pretty much knew. And yet, you know, and, and people are wondering, oh, Jesus, is it going to be awkward, you know, in the stadium? What's it going to be like? You know what the majority of the fans were? The majority of the fans cheered Scott Frost. You know why? Because the majority of the Scott Frost the people that were in that stadium probably had no idea that he even had a deal done with Nebraska. They didn't know any better. They don't follow this on a second-to-second deal. Um, so I, I think we blow this out of proportion. So I, at that point, and, and I'm the biggest UCFsports.com guy. I li- I'm a dungeon guy. I, I, li- I watch a lot of the reading, a lot of the stuff. But I think we, for, we sometimes get sucked in into thinking that what you see on the dungeon and what you read and what you did, that that represents the majority of the fan base, which it does not. Right. It does not. Uh, that's the minority. It's a loud, diehard minority. But I think the, the majority. The minority, are, as they say. Correct. Whereas the other fan bases, I mean, like I said, I, I think the majority of the people are fine with Scott Frost. Are they disappointed he le- he's leaving? Yes. But I think the, the people that have an issue with this, that are hard, you know, upset about it, I want to emphasize. And that's why my whole point is that I'm emphasizing. I think it's the loud minority. And, and the other example, and you know this, George O'Leary, right? Right. When George O'Leary was here, all I kept hearing about, well, you know, people, oh, everybody hates George O'Leary. You know, if, if you see when the day he leaves, you know, more people are going to go to UCF games. You know what happened? It didn't. It actually <laughs> had less attendance since he left. Um, as we found out, the people that hated George O'Leary was, the again, 
the minority uh, audience. The majority of the audience was like, oh, yeah, George, great. You know, they know George. Okay, as long as they won games. And if they weren't, they weren't happy. Fine. But I think sometimes we get sucked in on the narrative because we're all in this bubble. And, 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 and again, you know, I, I, it's great. Uh, and, and, and I listen to all that. I've met a lot of fans and the people that listen and all that. And it's great. But those are diehard fans. And just because we're the diehard fans, we think that everybody thinks like we're thinking when in reality is not. So that's my first point when it comes to the whole uh, – uh, uh, keep that in mind when you talk about the content and people uh, that are, quote, upset with Scott Frost, because I would be willing to bet. All right. I'd be willing to bet. I'll give you this bet right now. Ten okay. years from now, five to ten years from now, let's say they honored the 2017 UCF football team and Scott Frost is invited. And he comes back with that team. He comes to the stadium. Ninety nine point. I would say he gets cheered. Ninety nine percent. Nine point nine. Agree or disagree? I think he should be cheered 99%. But again, there's that vocal minority that's usually quite vocal who's just going to they're going to you know that they they have their black and gold colored glasses are stapled to their face and they can't step back for a second and think reasonably about this. Um I well, mean, remember what the, more can I, we I, possibly say about it though? You know? I mean, it's but, it's well, you say that, though, but I'll give the O'Leary example another example. I was at the Tulsa game uh, when they have, you know, they had the whole statue and they honored him during the game. And everybody's wondering, oh, geez, this could be really awkward, you know, the way things ended. And you know what? Everybody cheered him in the stadium. They cheered him. Uh, so I think it's kind of some of this stuff kind of gets overblown on that stuff. So that's number one. I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this. If UCF beats Auburn, you're going to hear a lot more people cheering for him 10 years from now than if UCF loses to Auburn. I know that. I agree with – no, I I do agree. I do agree that this game will impact the legacy. I do agree with that to an extent, yes. One way Um, or the other. To a a degree, you're right. Obviously, um, if you lose this game, let's say you lose this game badly, then there will be a bad taste in some of the people's mouth. Yes, I tend to agree on that. Uh, but at the same time, if they win the game, obviously I think he'll be fine uh, on that. That being said, again, George O'Leary got a, an ovation at the Tulsa game uh, months removed from going winless and being fired right. or, or being, you know, leaving. So Time heals uh, all the wounds. I do, I do. And I, I hope it's the case with Scott because I'll be quite frank, honest about it. I was not the biggest Scott Frost fan coming in. Uh, I had questions. Uh, I had critiques. I, I, I had concerns. And I think he's actually exceeded my expectations. I was completely wrong about him. I think what he's done for this program has been tremendous and should be applauded. And I have uh, – I, I I grew up as a kid hating Nebraska football. And you know what? I hope he wins at Nebraska. I hope he does well because I think that's a cool story. And I, I, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm all about uh, people, people being successful. Um, so I don't have a problem with that. Um, so that's the point. Number one, I also think this, let me see what you think about this. I think some of the anger and frustration and pettiness that people being upset, don't you think it's kind of a, uh, a couple of factors? I've UCF fans. And I think we all have this insecurity because going back to uh, a lot of things, right? We get defensive about a lot of things. We get defensive because there's a lot of Florida state fans and alumni in or in the uh, central Florida area. There's a lot of Gator fans in the central Florida area. So there's, there's a, there's this whole 
inferior thing about really concerned about who's got more fans in Orlando and things like that. They, they get defensive when people refer to them as Central Florida or they call the, you know, it's stuff like that, just oh, little boy. stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And then you go in and then you go into this season, you know, they're doing undefeated and they get all upset because of the stupid college football playoff rankings. Oh my God, we're ranked 15. We're ranked yeah. 16. Which everyone guess, knew it was going to be like that. Everyone correct. knew. Correct. So, I just feel like it's almost like a built-in frustration and inferior. And I think some people, I think, again, feel like, oh, we're, 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 we're being pushed aside because Scott Frost in Nebraska is the narrative and the storyline. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of uh, insecurities about that. Don't, do you agree or disagree? There's always yeah. insecurity around UCF's football program. And I think that that goes back to you know, just the nature of the – the, the nature and the history of the program. I mean, I, I think that we've always kind of had this Napoleonic complex and sometimes that works in our favor. I, I love the fact that, you know, that, that players and coaches look at us and they, you know, look at the situation here and they'll approach a game like against a team like Auburn and say, Oh yeah, you know, you think we're a little guy, watch this. You know, we tend to play above our competition. On the other hand, there's a flip side of that Napoleonic complex, and we're seeing that right now. Um, UCF, you know, being spurned by a head coach who brought great success to the program, turned the program around, changed the culture, and now they're like, oh, you're dead to us now. Well, he's not dead to you. He's coaching the team in the, in the bowl game because he can, he believes it's the right thing to do. And oh, by the, oh, oh, by the way, if any group of, say, the players, the assistant coaches, or the administrators thought that it was not a good idea, they wouldn't have agreed to it. Right. And they agreed. did agree to it. So if everyone in inside those walls is cool with it, then you know what? I'm cool with it, especially if it's the players. If the players weren't cool with it, I got news for it. They would have told Danny White right away. You know, well, like, I think all parties would have known that, too. Yeah. Well, I think all parties would have known that. And I think Scott Frost would have known that. I don't think for a second that the players didn't have any input on this because they did. Absolutely. And look, I'm telling you, the majority of the players, I, you know, when you're dealing, I don't know what the number of players are on a roster. What is it, 85 no, players? 85 scholarship. Let's walk on, let's say 100. Okay, so 85 to 100, whatever number you want to use. You're always going to have, yes, a certain amount of guys that aren't going to be happy, that are not happy that he left. Probably ones that are younger, that probably are either freshmen or sophomores. Look, it's hard enough to get 85 to 100 people to agree on one thing, right? <laughs> right. right? Where to go to lunch, let get, alone. We can't even get them to agree what uniforms to wear, but anyway. Correct. Um, so you're, is it all, you know, is every single player thrilled that coach Frost is around or that he left? Probably no, of course not. But I think everybody understands what the, how it works. And I think everybody at the end of the day has the same common goal and say, Hey, let's just go out and win this peach ball. And I think that everybody agrees that with coach Frost as the head coach, as the play caller gives you the best chance to do that. And if that's the goal, that's what you need to do. And, uh, I, I don't have a problem with it. I, I applaud all parties at how they've handled this awkward situation has everything been handled perfectly probably not but that's you know that's life that's human the and let's be honest for a lot of these people they're going through this for the first time scott frost has never gone through anything like this before in his life uh nobody has so right i think a lot of this is media drama 
A lot of this is media likes to drama, you know, dramatize all this stuff and create this, you know, just like those distractions that the team had, right? Going into the USF and Memphis game I kept hearing about that was going to affect how they played and they were going to lose because of it. How'd that turn out? Oh, they won the game. That's right. Right. So yeah. um, I just think people need just to enjoy it. Like, right. this is a 12 and 0. We don't know if we're ever going to see another undefeated season at UCF. Those aren't easy to come by. No, they are not. But I will say this I, I got my tickets today. They came I'll in the mail. There you go, rub it in. I can't wait. It's going to be exciting. They gave me the little commemorative, uh, um, the commemorative tickets here, like a printout that has all the tickets of all the games and the scores that were on there. Um, this is awesome. I mean, I, I, I get excited for this more and more every single day, and and you know, I've it's been a privilege to be a part of you know, to to at least be a small part of covering the team. I know you and Murph have had a great time covering it. Um, and I'm looking forward to the Peach Bowl, and I'm gonna. My son and I are gonna be as fan, attending the game as fans, um, because you know, like I said, I, I, I unfortunately couldn't make it to Phoenix for the Fiesta Bowl, but you know, this is this is this is my best chance to see UCF in a major bowl game. I'm gonna enjoy it, and I hope that we win. I, I hope that we win. I hope that we win convincingly. Um, I don't know if it's gonna happen, but that's my. That's my hope, and I'm gonna, like you said, I'm going to enjoy this, and I'm glad that Scott Frost is here to put a to put a coda to his um, his time at UCF, and hopefully we send him out on a uh, on a on a positive note. Um, so, all right, so that's so so that's that for football for right now. By the way, stick around. Coming up after the break, uh, we're going to have a, an interview that we recorded with uh, Jimmy Frizzell, uh, former UCF football player from 1999 to 2002. Uh, and he will talk about his time at UCF and how the program has grown since his time at UCF and what he thinks of the 2017 team uh, as well. You know, Because remember, last time he played with UCF, that was the last time we had a really wide-open offense. We have a wide-open offense now. So, um, so that should be a lot of fun. Stick around uh, because we're going to have Jimmy Frizzell coming up after this. The Black and Gold Banneret Podcast is back in just a second. The Black and Gold Banneret Podcast is brought to you by the Sam Unger Real Estate Team. Sam and his team proudly serve Orange, Seminole, and Lake Counties, specializing in buying, selling, and new construction. Powered by EXP Realty. Sam is a proud UCF graduate, class of 2006, and fans, he's such a dedicated Knight fan that right now, if you work with him as your realtor, he will donate a portion of his commission to the UCF Football Excellence Fund in your name. The real estate market here in Central Florida has been on the move for some time now, so if you're ready to buy a new home or sell your current home, Sam's got you covered so you can find the right home at the right price in the right location. So give Sam a call right now at 407-790-9957. Again, that's 407-790-9957. Or visit him on the web at samsellsorlando.net. Again, that's samsellsorlando.net. You can also reach Sam on Facebook at facebook.com slash samsellsorlando. Get in touch with the Sam Unger real estate team today and make finding your dream home a reality. Hello, Night Nation. I'm Andrew Fegley. And I'm Trace Trolko. Um, uh, um, where are we? This isn't our usual spot. It looks like we've landed in the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Oh, yeah. I've, I've heard of those guys. 
You know, Nightline has UCF Sports covered. Week in and week out, we bring you interviews with newsmakers and in-depth analysis of UCF Sports. Subscribe to our weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to Nightline on YouTube, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at UCF underscore Nightline. Trace, can we go back to the 1148 studios now and start working on our next all-new Nightline? How do we get out of here? Go Knights! Charge on! Now back to you guys in the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez with you. Don't forget, you can follow us at blackandgoldbanneret.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash blackandgoldbanneret. And on Twitter at UCF underscore banneret. You can follow me at Jeff underscore Sharon and Eric at Eric Lopez Elo. Don't forget to also follow our fellow editor, Brian Murphy at spokes underscore Murphy and subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and tune in radio. All right. So uh, back to football. If you take a look at the UCF record books, Eric Lopez, you will notice one team keeps popping up uh, and it's the 2002 UCF football team, which was the most prolific offense uh, that UCF had. Basically, there's two teams. There's the 2002 team and the 2017. 2007 was um, was obviously the Kevin Smith year. But 2002 was UCF's first year in the MAC, And it was probably the peak of the Mike... Cru- not the peak of the Mike Kruzek era. That was 1998. But darn near a second peak. Um, we had a 3,000-yard quarterback, 3,500-yard passing, passing yard quarterback, 2,000-yard receivers, and a 1,000-yard rusher. Ryan Schneider, of course, was the quarterback. The rusher was Alex Haynes. And the two receivers were Doug Gabriel and Jimmy Frizzell. Jimmy Frizzell, uh, a Florida kid, went to Lakeland High School. Um, A very successful career at UCF uh, and a very successful career in the Arena Football League after bouncing around some NFL camps um, is – and is – you know, close was one of the real fan favorites when he played uh, at UCF. So I this is this is what's wonderful. This is what I think is wonderful about UCF. School is sixty thousand people, right? I literally almost physically ran into Jimmy Frizzell while I was running an errand, and that's how I got connected with him. Um, and it, I, I saw him. I was like, "Wait a minute, you're Jimmy Frizzell, right?" He's like, yeah. Well, how you doing? And I introduced myself, you know, and. And we got to talking about UCF football, and I invited him on the podcast, and he was kind enough to uh, join us. So um, without further ado, I'm going to present this interview. Um, and this is, this is one of the more fun interviews I think I've ever done. I'm really, really thankful to Jimmy that he spent some time, uh, they took time out of his busy schedule um, to talk with me. Um, and uh, here it is, for a former wide receiver for UCF from 1999 to 2002, number 16, Jimmy Frizzell. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well. Yourself? Doing great. Thanks for taking time for me. Um, let's go ahead and start and, and start real quick because you know you um, your football background at UCF. You know, for those of us you know like me who are you know UCF historians, you're a, you're one of the great names in UCF history. Um, you uh, you were born uh, to a football family in uh, Youngstown, Ohio. Your dad. Uh, Dale spent his you know, basically his entire life in football. Uh, you found you guys found yourself down in uh, down in Lakeland, so you went to Lakeland High School, which uh, for anyone who doesn't know is 
first of all, one of the great mascots in all of sports, the Dreadnoughts. Uh, and, uh, and you played for the great Bill Castle, where uh, you were part of the 1996 team that, as a freshman that won the state title. Your brother Dennis was on that team. Um, how did you get to UCF in 1999? Well, uh, I mean, I was fortunate enough to actually be zoned for Lakeland, even though at the time my dad was actually coaching at a, uh, not a rival high school, but a lower high school, we'll say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he gave really my brother and myself the chance, Hey, you know, you can either come to school where I'm coaching or you guys can go where you're zoned. And basically my brother is a couple years older, went to Lakeland, you know, saw the football program they had, and I just follow suit. Um, was fortunate enough to start, like you said, in 96, my sophomore year, started three years. I think we lost two games. Um, and really it was, it was Coach Allen Gooch and Coach Becton at the time, receivers in kind of Lakeland area that was recruiting. And I went to a summer camp, you know, post-Dante. So that was the first year post-Dante. And went to the summer camp before my senior in high school. Uh, worked out, ran really well at their little mini combine, if you will. And they ended up offering me at the end of the camp going into my senior year. So it was kind of a nice you know, weight off your shoulders, if you will. You have a little momentum going into the year. And just, uh, <clears throat> it ended up coming to fruition. You know, um, got some other offers, went on some other visits, but I know my parents were really happy to have me stay here in Florida, so it was local, and just the offense that Coach Kruzik at the time ran was a wide-open pass-happy, where at the time at Lakeland, I was a little more of a wide blocker. You know, we were a triple-option team dominant, but by third quarter, we'd all be out sitting on the sidelines, and it really wasn't a stat-happy for a receiver kind of program right yeah 1999 when the, when you got to UCF and by the way when you graduated high school you know I'm pretty sure that if if I had been a uh, high school classmate of yours I probably would have hated your guts because you were one of those guys who was all everything at everything um st student council junior class president you were in the National Honor Society you were in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes you also lettered in track and soccer you come to UCF in 1999 as a freshman, and you and for those of us who don't quite remember the Mesozoic period of UCF football, what was it like when UCF was a D1 independent trying to fight for college football respect at the time? Oh, it, it was difficult. I mean, looking back now. I think maybe we had 25 or 26 bowl games. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not having any ties to a conference. Um, I want to say the year before, I think Culpepper's last year, they went nine and two. Right. And they could have beaten one or two ranked teams or very close games. And they didn't even get a bowl invite. So as well, I guess, recruiting tool as the coaches turn it into, because my first year we started off Purdue, Florida, Georgia, Georgia Tech, had Auburn on the schedule. I mean, you live to play in those stadiums. So it's a great recruiting tool, but you really needed to win every one of those games as an independent to even be invited to a bowl game. Right. So it was difficult. I mean, we didn't get into the MAC conference until my senior year. And geographically, it wasn't ideal for us, but we just saw, I mean, 
I'd say three out of the four years, we were above 500 with our records, which now bowl games are looking for anybody who even is 500. I mean, they've taken five and seven teams before the bowl games. Yeah. So I mean, it, it was difficult for po- postseason, you know, being independent. <clears throat> yeah, it was. It, it's it's easy to forget because also I think I remember uh, you know, my freshman year was 0102. Uh, which was your junior year. And I remember uh, that there, there was, in addition to all that, you know, for example, like you, you guys practiced outdoors. And during the summer, when it's raining all the time and there's thunderstorms rolling through central Florida, well, well, we can't have you guys out on the practice field. So everyone would say, so I think I remember you guys would have to go inside, right? To like the education gym to get your summer <laughs> practices in and stuff. It was like, you now you have the indoor facility and everything, but I mean, what was that? What was that kind of like? Well, it, it was the time of that school. I mean, I think we still had almost 30000 for admissions, but you had no on-campus housing. I mean, you walk on that campus now where the stadium is, even all the dorms. It was nothing there. Yeah. So, you know, with our practice fields, and sure enough, always in the summertime, we practiced in the afternoons, you always had rain come about 3 o'clock. So, yeah, we had some games where everybody piled in and you had about a half a basketball court to try to run the offense and a half a basketball court to try to run the defense. And it was probably not the ideal situation for the coaches, but we did what we could with the environment we had. And, um, you know, that's where you kind of throw in a lot more film study, if you will, because it almost became a little bit of a walkthrough at that point because you couldn't stretch the field and everybody – basically was congested and DVs are sitting on routes and yeah, not realistic. What was it like playing in coach Cruz X offense at that time? It was, it was ahead of its time. Now it seems like everyone runs a variant of the spread that coach Cruz ran. Yeah. It's crazy to see that now this spread offense that everyone runs. It's really what we had those run pass options. We would go to the line of scrimmage and it would either be the bubble screens or run the ball, depending on how many people the defense put in the box. Uh, now you hear that RPO for Auburn's UCFs. I mean, basically probably 50% of the teams right now, uh, we were ahead of its time. We didn't do as much no huddle. You know, our no huddle is still really the two minute drill, but it's, it's weird to watch the game now and go back and think of those were some of our most successful drives is we were going no huddle, but our conditioning, I don't think, was at the level that all these teams are now because they constantly do it at practice, and they do it all through the games. So I think we would have died at that time if we tried to consistently do the no huddle. In 2002, your senior year, uh, UCF, like you mentioned, got into the MAC, the Mid-American Conference. I, I remember I was there for the announcement that UCF was finally in a conference, and this is going to open up the possibility to do it to bowl games and conference championships and everything. And you're right; it wasn't it wasn't geographically favorable. You had seemingly half the teams in Ohio, half the teams in Michigan, and then us. Uh, and uh, but I felt I remember I felt at the time that it was it was the perfect fit in terms of competitiveness. Um, and that first year in 2002, pretty pretty much almost bore out correctly because that was a really good team. Even though the final record was seven and five, four of the five games were decided by less than a touchdown, three of them by three points. How close was that 2002 team to being a truly all-time amazing team in UCF history? 
I think we were probably four weeks too late. Uh, just saying, you know, we lost, a, I remember Penn State, the opener up mm-hmm. there, uh, blocked field goals, just, you know, first game, a couple mistakes. Um, second one was out of Arizona State. We were up at half and just fell completely apart. Uh, third game, I think, was it might have been the Marshall game. So we yeah. started off 0-3, and we still were fitting people in. Kind of, I mean, I even moved more to the slot toward the end of the year. And I think it was just we found the right fit at offensive line. We found the right fit of, you know, which slot receivers were going. And by the end of the year, I mean, we were, we were unstoppable on offense. And it's one of those you wish you could have played some of those teams toward the end. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, at that time, when you played that better competition or those higher-ranked schools, it was basically those first two, three, four weeks you had to get them out of the way because the rest was all conference play. Right. Now, I remember the um, the Marshall game, I remember, stuck out because that was the first ever conference game in school history. And it was up there in Huntington, and Marshall was a big deal because they had just, I think they just won the conference. Byron Leftwich was a Heisman candidate that year, and we came so close in that one game. But but then you look at the point totals that you guys put up, you know, 48 against Liberty, 45 at Buffalo, 48 at Miami of Ohio. 42 at Ohio. There was some real talent on that team. Give me some of the names that you of the guys that you remember um, that because uh, I got a list of them for word association here. But there was some amazing talent on that team. Yeah, I mean, we actually I want to say you know Ryan Schneider was our quarterback. Yep. Um, I want, I know he had over three thousand yards. We had Alex Haynes as our tailback. He had over a thousand yards. Doug and myself. Doug Gabriel, we had both had over a thousand yards. Um, you know, we had Luther Huggins and Tavares Capers were, I think, sophomores at the time. Mm-hmm. But I mean, those were solid number three and number four receivers. We just had some good depth. We shared the ball around, and like I said, statistically, to have you know a thousand yard back, two thousand yard receivers, we had some offensive yards. The um, I'm going to do some quick word association with you, and I'll just I'll just list a name, and then you say the first word that comes to mind. You ready? Okay. All right. Ryan Schneider. Ah, uh, gamer. Doug Gabriel. Ah, uh, it, it's weird now because Doug now is actually is one of those lifelong friends. Yeah, he's one of those. He was a great. Uh, competitor, great alongside. I mean, just a, a true partner, I'll say, on and off the field. <clears throat> Brandon Marshall. Young at the time. He was like a freshman. Say, we that developed year. him. Yeah. <laughs> he was. He was a true freshman. And, you know, it was funny going back and talking to Brandon his senior year. And, you know, seeing the guy just – his size alone. I mean, he was giant. I'm like, God, you grew into your body. He kind of filled out. I mean, a heck of an athlete and so respectful to my now wife, to me. I mean, it just, he was very appreciative of just kind of the foundation that Doug and I were able to lay for him. Alex Haynes. And you see what he did. Oh yeah. Uh, Bulldog. Hard fighter. God, I, I'm so glad I was I was never on the business end of one of his runs, man, because he was a bowling ball, that guy. It was unbelievable. Never got yeah. enough respect, did he? 
No, I mean, I, again, I think just because we did throw the ball a lot, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't try to say, oh, you know, he's, he's not a power back. Or, but, I mean, again, to, as much as we threw the ball, he still ended up with 1,000 yards that season. Yeah, I, I don't know what his average per carry was, but you felt it every time you had to hit him. Atari Bigby. Pure athlete. Um, here, here's one. Uh, here's one for you. I think. Uh, uh, oh yeah, I didn't ask you ask you uh, his name yet. Asante Samuel. Best corner I ever played against. You guys must have had some serious battles out there on the practice field. We did. I mean, it was fun. Uh, you know, Asante is another guy that I mean, just love him as a person. Um, you know, a little surprised. Uh, I guess. You know what he ended up doing in the NFL. I mean, he always had the athletic talent. Uh, it really showed, I think, in his New England days, just how smart of a corner he was. Yeah. Yeah, he was so athletic, we would kind of put him on an island and just let him lock somebody down. But seeing kind of his defense he was put in with uh, New England really showed his intelligence for the game and led to a number of those picks that he baited people into. Right. Last name for you, Matt Prater. True freshman at the time, but had a cannon for a leg. Still has it. Yeah. Well, you were the holder, I think, too, on special teams, weren't you? Yep. Yeah. Yep. He was so uh, funny because I. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say, as his true freshman year, I remember one thing with Matt is we're going through training camp, and I was the holder at the time. And I remember he came up to me as a freshman and was like, hey, I want you to hold for me. I'm like, who's this little kid <laughs> telling me he wants me to hold for him? And sure enough, I mean, just I remember Coach McFarlane at the time, I mean, the height that he got on his kicks and the power for just a freshman was incredible. Yeah, I remember he hit that 53-yarder against Penn State, and we were like, whoa, who is this kid? This is a real weapon. True freshman making in front, making a fifty-three yard in front of one hundred and five thousand people. That was something. And uh, and what was it? the guy? I remember the guy he beat out was Ryan Feely, who was Jay Feely's little brother. Remember that? Yep. Yeah. So that tells so, yeah, you how good I, he was. I, I was with yeah, I was with Jay in Atlanta. I remember we were kind of talking about that. But I mean, look now, he's got the NFL record for the longest kick. Right, and he's still going, still going, amazing. All right. You know, you talked about you were you were in Atlanta for a little while. Um, you know, you bounced around with a couple of NFL training camps. Miami, I think you started out. In fact, my buddy uh, Matt Brodsky, who actually worked for a time with the Dolphins, was like, "Hey, Jimmy, one time at in down in Davie, and uh, let's go nice." And he was and he was and and he you recognized that and came over and talked to him. For those of us who are mere mortals who never sniffed the difference between college and and professional football. What is the difference between college football and NFL football from an on-field perspective? From an on-field, it's all speed. I mean, everybody can run. When you have defensive ends that are just giants of humans that can run the same speed as skill guys, it is such a speed game. What was the what was the moment when you realized that speed? Uh, I'd have to say just our first kind of training camp in uh, in uh, Miami. We just had like a mini camp soon after the draft. It was like a three day camp, 
and you got out with everybody and just, I mean, it was a professional business organization where everybody took care of their own um, job. They warmed up by themselves. You know, everybody was ready to go at the initial onset of a hike, if you will. And I mean, I, I remember just thinking how much more of an athlete I was, even through all the training after your last year and how much faster I was. And you're just all on the same level at that time. Yeah. I mean, everybody could play at that level. You latched on in the Arena Football League with the Orlando Predators. You had three successful years there. Uh, when you played in the Arena League, you know the Arena League was at its real peak. It was on NBC. Attendance was the highest throughout the league. It was the largest number of teams. I think there were 19 teams at the time is where it peaked. What did it mean for guys like you to get a shot in the Arena Football League? And do you think that the NFL needs a developmental league sort of on that level now? First, I don't think they need. I mean, it was a great addition, like another option. I don't think the NFL needs it just because the way college football is now. Mm -hmm. And honestly, your length of a career in the NFL is so minimal and there's so much turnover. Um, from my standpoint, and because we were kind of at the peak, I'd say 90% of the people at that time had some type of NFL experience. And it was some guys who just might've gone with the wrong teams or they were drafted, but never got to put anything on the field. And it was always kind of bubble guys, if you will. Some guys went up, some guys came back, some guys went up. Uh, it was just another way to kind of display your talents. Um, it was a different style game than outdoor football. And that was one thing that I remember coach Jay Gruden would always say, he's like, you have to respect this game. Don't think, Oh, because you're on an NFL team or NFL roster, this is beneath you. It was that different of a game that that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it. It was just more fitting to my style of route running or my style of adjustments. There were a lot more options that I was given in running routes and creating separations from DBs. Well, I'll say you enjoyed it because in three years you scored 49 touchdowns, which is, which is, you know, I mean, it's the, yes, it's the arena game. There's more offense, but that's still an astounding total. Um, the, the, what was your favorite moment going back to your days with the Preds? Um, I mean, probably ours going to the arena bowl. Um, that's going to not actually in our arena bowl game. You know, you, you always think yeah, it's funny. People will say, Oh yeah, you can get there next year. You'll get there again. You guys have the same team, but at that professional level, when you see it with the exception of the Patriots, just how hard it is to be a back-to-back you know, championship team. Yeah. Um, that year, I mean, we, we just, it was awesome. I mean, it was really a fun time. Our team really came together. Uh, you know, Joe Hamilton was our QB. We had a good rapport that year. Uh, just, I mean, really had a lot of fun and it was, it was an entertaining game for the players because you only had 20 people, you know, you would travel. It's always, commercial flights so just a lot of the camaraderie on the actual flights 
and I guess making other passengers sometimes uncomfortable. <laughs> but it was a blast. <laughs> the, um, the 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 sad part was kind of how your career came to an end. I think it was in February of two thousand eight, um, where your knee went out on you, uh, and then it was. Uh, it was just bad timing because right after that was the work stoppage and the league kind of pancaked from there. So tell me about that period of time and how, and how the arena league kind of fell off the map a little bit, even though it's still going, even now it's a shell of its former self. Right. Well, uh, I mean, because we had, we had good athletes in the league and you had the TV contracts and honestly, our salary caps per team continued to go up. Mm-hmm. And when you have salary caps get to a certain point, you have to have the TV revenue. It's never the attendance revenue. Right. And, you know, our ownership at the time, like Jerry Jones, you had Bon Jovi, uh, Jaworski was part of it. Um, I'm trying to think who was a national a country singer in that. I think John Elway had a piece of the Colorado team too, didn't he? Yeah, Elway had yep. a piece of Colorado. So yeah, we I mean we had a lot of ownership that was you know, celebrities, if you will. So it brought up a lot of attention. And honestly, I think they were just paying the players too much, and that kind of started. Okay, you know we're we're not getting the TV revenue. I think that was really covering the salary caps. The attendances still weren't full, even though Orlando had a great presence just around uh, the country, they weren't filling up all the time and everybody had those same caps. So somehow you had to be able to afford all of these players. Um, For me personally, you know, of course, blowing ACL, uh, one-on-ones, non-contact, and I just overstrided, stuck in the ground. I heard it pop, you know, hoping the best meniscus was not. Um, I, I can look back now, and honestly, I was fortunate that that happened just because it got me into my work career I'm in now. And I believe they didn't actually make the announcement for that uh, stoppage of Arena until December, and usually we reported to camp in January. Right. So it really kind of caught a lot of these guys. And there were rumors going around. But a lot of the guys, uh, we were always paid, you know, six, seven months of the season. And those other five months, you're on your own. So a lot of people would budget their salaries to go through the 12 months. And unfortunately, when that 13th month came, you didn't get a paycheck again. So I think it caught a lot of people off guard where they had a panic. Me, I mean, I was fortunate enough to kind of get into a career uh, while the season was still going on or just to the end of it, even though I thought I was coming back, I was able to get into something else and not be stressed. So what are you doing now? So I am actually selling medical devices. So at the time, uh, the surgeon that actually operated on me uh, was just asking what I want to do post-football career and told me about It was sports medicine injuries, so it's injuries I always saw in the locker room, you always saw on ESPN, and I'm kind of on the other side of it where I just had an ACL, and now I'm going into the OR and actually seeing ACLs done and selling medical devices to help those procedures. How, uh, How close are you to the UCF football program now? 
So, I mean, I, I, I loved Frost, um, Janandrick, you know, Becton was always still there. So we have a letterman's, um, club that coach O'Leary started. So I'm a board of director on that. So we still have interaction. Um, I will say I haven't met the new head coach or any of the coaches right now. I have not been up there. I know it's kind of a, kind of weird scenario up there. So we'll kind of finish this year up. And then I always try to get out there during springtime, just kind of talk with some of the coaches, just see what, you know, how they feel about former players coming back. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, we always haven't had coaches that love to see everybody come back. It was kind of select few. So yeah, (laughs) I always like to see what kind of support they want from the former alumni. What did you think of? Uh, yeah, I know it's it, it is such a weird situation now, and and but you know, hey, UCF this year is going to the going to the Peach Bowl, second big time bowl game in uh, in school history, going to go, you know, including a, you know, obviously twenty thirteen with the Fiesta Bowl, and now it's now it's like you almost take going to any bowl game for granted almost at UCF. What did you think of this year's team and the offense that they were able to put together? As uh, you know, I mean, they they were able to you know. Mackenzie Milton, for example, I think surpassed Ryan Schneider's numbers for touchdown passes and total offense. Um, they're, they're knocking down some of your guys' records from 2002. I, I, they're exciting to watch. I, mean, I honestly loved it as a receiver because you did spread the ball out. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, as much as I like some of the individual receivers just watching their techniques, I mean, we spread the ball around. I mean, every different game, it was another player that stepped up. And there was just so much speed and there was so much, I guess, coaching that went into getting those players in space. And that's what I loved is they just hit those guys when they're on the runs and two, three-yard safe completions, and then we could take them for 40. So it was really exciting to watch that this year. I mean, my wife, kids myself i mean i I loved it 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 was just a different style of football even though coach frost was here last year it was just different offensively than what we've had for maybe you know five six years yeah i mean as a fan and as someone who's covered the program since i was you know a student you know back when you guys were playing i was always you know i'm appreciative of as a fan of what coach o'leary did in the 13 years he was here but i feel like we were starved for that that sort of entertainment value, if you will, and I know that that's not everything in college football, but um, but it was it was so fun to watch. And do, do you think that it's going to stay like this, or do you think that there's kind of, or, or do you think or is football kind of like a cyclical thing? I, I mean, I think football goes to whatever works at the time. I mean, you had those power, uh, you know, two back sets, pound it down your throat. I mean, even look at the Big Ten that everybody used to say, oh, all they do is run the ball. You know, the Big Ten now opens up. I think football has moved to you throw maybe 50-50 or even 60-40% of the time when it used to be, yeah, you might throw 20% of the time. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, for entertainment value, it always helps when you win. I mean, you could be throwing the ball just as much, and if you're losing, people are going to grumble, people are going to complain. But I like it from a receiver standpoint just because it reminds me more of that arena style. I mean, like you said, it's 
it's touchdowns, it's points, it's entertainment. I know, you know, the, the five yard chuck rules, there's a lot of rules that have changed in football too, to kind of be more pro offense and marketing, you know, TV kind of, they get it. Mm. They understand that people want to see points because that is more entertaining. The, uh, how do you think you would have done if we transplanted 2002 U into 2017 UCF? I probably would have had a blast. I mean, <laughs> would have been fun. I mean, you know, I, again, like we talked earlier, I can't say that we didn't throw the ball around because we were one of those pass happy teams. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I do like the creativity on how you're getting these guys in space with the ball. I think you can do a lot more with the yards after catch than a lot of kind of the stationary positional routes that, yeah, you're catching the ball, but you're kind of getting the ball standing still, whether it's hook routes, stop routes, and it's harder to, you know, run after catch versus when you're getting people on the move. Right. right. So we've got, uh, so as we finish up here with you, Jimmy Frizzell, um, well, you're going to be up in Atlanta, right? Yes, sir. I will be heading up there the 31st. All right, you and me both. I'll be heading up there New Year's Eve as well. I'm hoping I'll uh, hoping I'll run into you at some point, maybe at the uh, alumni association thing or somewhere along the game. But uh, like I said, thank you so much for taking some time for me. Uh, holiday season's right around the corner. Merry Christmas to you and yours, and uh, I'll see you on uh, I'll see you come uh, New Year's up in Atlanta. God willing. Thank you so much. You too. Merry Christmas. And uh, hopefully we'll keep the power on the airport up in Atlanta. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> Once again, tremendous thanks to Jimmy for taking time out of his uh, busy schedule to, um, to, to talk to me and re- revisit his football days and help us catch up on, uh, on everything that he's been doing since football and, uh, and, 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 keeping an eye, and keeping us updated also on what the Letterman's Club has been doing. Um, and, and I do hope that uh, Josh Heupel, I think, like he's like he mentioned, um, and his staff do a little bit more work in keeping that Letterman's Club going because that's one thing that I, I I do hope UCF does a better job of is alumni relations with the athletes. Um, <laughs> yep. yep. Because there's a lot of athletes out there that, and I think that this is something that you, there are a lot of former athletes out there at UCF, and not just in football, but in all sports that you know really that can really help add to the institutional memory of this, of this program. And, uh, and that's how you build the, build a program into an institution, right? Um, I think of the one thing I think of is, okay, you ever, you ever see the, everyone shows the very famous shot of um, like at the university of Michigan, when Michigan comes running out of the tunnel, and they run under that big giant sign, and they all jump up and they touch that sign, right? Um, do you know what that sign says, Eric Lopez? Uh, not top of my head right now. Okay. It says, Go Blue, M Club supports you. Do you know who the M Club is? I would assume it's some sort of alumni group. That is the Michigan football alumni group. All right. That's how important it is at a school like Michigan that it's, it's, it's not the boosters that put that up there. It's the former players that, that throw their weight behind the football team. And that can really um, be a boon to, um, 
to, to every football program out there. I think UCF can learn a lot from that because our football history, though short, uh, has a lot of lessons to teach um, the players that are around today. You know, I mean, we got we got guys who played when UCF, you know, still around when UCF was a Division three school. Okay, um, playing on the swamps of St. Leo. Um, you know, when we were Division two, Division one, Double A, an independent, like when Jimmy Frizzell was here. You know, fighting to try and get to a bowl game that just didn't that just didn't want us because we were an independent, and. Um, and now it's easy to take a lot of the luxuries that we have today with UCF football uh, for granted. But you know, I think you know Jimmy knows that, and he's been doing great. Uh, you know, a lot of work with it. His former teammate Doug Gabriel has been doing doing a lot of work with the Letterman's Club, and I hope that those guys get um, as much support as they need, and then some, uh, to make this really uh, to to make that to make that group um, uh, really become an asset. Uh, a tremendous asset to UCF football. What do you think? Oh, I'd agree, and I would expand it to all UCF athletic teams. Yes, um, definitely. You know, football obviously gets a lot of the attention there, but I think there's the other sports I think could do uh, and keep the alumni there because I do, you know, and I've talked to a lot of former athletes, uh, you know, a lot of various of sports. In fact, the recently I was, um, I'll give you an example. A couple weeks back, I was the College Cup was here uh, in Orlando. And uh, UCLA was in it. I mean, Nick Cromwell uh, was 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 big part of that, you know, UCF soft, soccer history. And she was coaching UCLA. And, and I got to go to the semifinal and the final. And it, it I, I got to run into a lot of her former players were there. Courtney Witten and, uh, you know, Kim, New, uh, you know, Newsom, Yvonne George uh, uh, and players going back through throughout all the different eras, the, the different times there and the bond there. Uh, and that was cool to see, you know, the support they had for coach Cromwell. In fact, um, we actually have the audio. Let, let, I want to play the clip because I asked coach Cromwell about the support about her former players being there, UCF players, but rooting for UCLA because they were rooting for her and she got very emotional about it. This, this week has been awesome. And <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, um, coming back UCF was my home for 14 years and, um, these players that uh, came out to support me is um, is what it's all about in the end. And um, it was cool for our players to be around all of this and see um, what it's really like to you know you spend four years out of college you you invest so much in each other's lives and um, these girls are my lives forever. You could tell the emotion there with the Cromwell and and and. One of the things that irks me at times is I feel like part of the problem, Jeff, we always – seems like the model – we always worried about what's coming up. What's the future, right? What's next? Uh, hey, what's next? The big – you know, when it was during conference realignment, let's go here. Let's go there. Uh, what's the next recruit, right? Signing day. It's funny that we're doing this on signing day. Uh, and I don't know if we do enough to uh, pay attention to the past players and past coaches and and – you know, in a way, I think the Scott it's almost Frost like we try to like cover up the past in a way. It's kind of right. Weird, we try, isn't oh, it? I, right, I, I I agree, and and I'll be honest, full disclosure, because I've had some conversations with some former athletes. I'm not going to mention the sports, uh, but there are some sports that they felt neglected. They don't feel they're a part of it. That they feel that they're not wanted because it seems like the only time they're hurt, they're you know they they hear from the school or hear from the the programs. 
uh, is because, well, we need a donation, you know, and yeah. you know, that rubs some people the wrong way. And I think that's right, you know, especially with people that have contributed to the program. So, you know, I give Todd Dagenet credit, for example, as you know, uh, he, he honors the, the past at volleyball. You know that very well, having uh, obviously covered that program. Uh, he like it was funny, like uh, they all, you know, one of the matches I was in during this season, they honored one of the former players that was in attendance. They do that ring of honor yep. uh, as well. Uh, I think that's great. I think we, that should be I think more of the other teams and all the all UCF sports teams uh, should do that, um, you know, because I, I do think they want to be a part of it in talking to some of the players. They just want to feel a part of it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be. Hey, come to an alumni weekend and on campus. Because let's be honest, as you you could relate to this, a lot of the former players and people have are now family, you know, mothers or or, or dads, and they have jobs and they have kids. And Some of them are grandfathers, right? And so they can't just make it out to UCF. But maybe what we could do is if you know if they're living in a in a town where UCF's playing on the road, bring them around, bring them around, you know? Um, so I think that's a factor in all that. I, I do. I, uh, I think we could do better on those things and, and not just football. I know we, you talked to Frizzell and, and he was right about the football side of things and I've seen it. I think they have done some good things with the football side of things. I've seen the former players have like these barbecues before the games. I've covered those. Um, I saw that last year. Um, we even at saw the same time this year too, with, um, uh, at homecoming as well, I think that, and they put together a nice little video of that too. I thought I saw, you know, Doug Gabriel is coaching high school uh, down at Liberty right. High School down in Kissimmee, um, and he was there. I think he was instrumental in getting getting that together and getting some of the former players out there. But you know, as good as it was, I think that I I I would like to see. I'm sure the players, the former players, would like to see even more. Agreed, a hundred percent. And I think we could say that for a lot of the sports on UCF to. Uh, do that. Uh, I, I've actually, one of the things I, I'll give you a full disclosure. I have actually, uh, at the request, uh, of certain people, uh, I'm kind of in the, uh, helping out with UCF, the softball program, for example, getting in touch with some of the former players to bring them back here for alumni weekend and stuff. And also when they go on the road to go to some of the games. So I've actually, uh, stepped in there and helped contribute in that way, uh, in communicating with some of the people. And it's been very positive, uh, over the last few months, and uh, looking forward to that moving forward, uh, because I know a lot of them. That's why, <laughs> yeah. uh, quite frankly, right? I've been there now over ten years. So, uh, but I think that's certainly something that make, the, the areas that that can be improved on. And the other thing is, I hope, uh, and I do intend to try to find out more information probably after the new year on this. Hope we get the Hall of Fame back. You and I were there, uh, the last one, 2015, mm-hmm. when St- Stephanie Best, uh, D Brown. You had the nineteen what was the nineteen seventy eight volleyball uh, yep, national the entire champion. team yeah the nineteen seventy eight national championship team and I think we both agreed right? that was a cool night we really enjoyed being there uh, and I know they're doing some kind of uh, reshaping of those things and tweaking some things and improve trying to improve some things from what I understand I hope we get that back soon uh, whether it be this twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, whatever. Hopefully, we can get that back too, because I think that's a great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that event uh, in honoring the past, which I think is a big part of it. So I well, agree with you. One of the things also that we're going to have um, is in one of the new buildings that they're going to have. Uh, I've been I've been told this um, is that um, in one of the new um, athletic uh, office buildings that they're going to be over on the right. athletic center, the one that's going to go in between the 
the Wayne Dench Center and the indoor practice facility, that the Hall of Fame will actually physically exist there. Yes, and, I heard uh, that too. That, I was excited to hear that. I was excited. I did yeah, hear that, that recently. Made me, happy. me too. Uh, I think that's awesome. Uh, so I look forward to that and uh, hopefully looking forward to seeing the Hall of Fame return, whether it be uh, 2018 or, or, or 2019, whenever. Uh, but that, that'll hopefully be soon. That'll, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. And I hope they televise it live, too, and stream it live. That'll be fun. So, all right, let's switch gears over to uh, basketball. Let's talk uh, first a little men's basketball, Eric Lopez. It's Wednesday, December the 20th. Uh, that, that's when we're recording this. And you, yesterday, took a trip in the Wayback Machine. Well, you and Murph, actually. Uh, as you guys headed up to Stetson for uh, the night's matchup with the Hatters at the Edmonds Center, the old stomping grounds up in DeLand, and uh, UCF basically disposed of the Hatters. Uh, 74-55 was the final to go to 8-3. and three. Um, Taco Fall, 8 for 9 uh, from the field. 18 points, 11 boards to lead the Knights. Workman-like game for him. A.J. Davis with 11 and 10. Uh, 13 points and 4 rebounds for Dayon Griffin. 9 assists for uh, Terrell Allen, who's just really filled in admirably for uh, B.J. Taylor. Um, this is a real workmanlike performance for UCF basketball uh, as they advance to 8-3, uh, and three, and they're basically one win away from withstanding the, uh, the, the, the early season injuries that, they, that, that they've suffered to this point and getting through the schedule pretty much unscathed with no bad losses to their credit uh, and one good win uh, at Alabama. Um, you were at the game. Um, it's it, it. By the way, you, last time UCF lost to Stetson, I was a senior in high school. <laughs> uh, that was uh, January of two thousand one, um, and that includes our last four years in the same conference as Stetson. Um, just another, just, just another. Wall work- was the, uh, yeah, the head coach at Stetson back then. That was. Um- I think that was my first year of watching UCF basketball because I had moved up to Orlando and they were yeah. not very good. Uh, but well, yeah, no. Was- what a win for UCF basketball, though, by 19 points. And they did so in very, I guess, uneventful and and I don't want to say uninspired because they weren't, but it was just kind of, I mean, they just poured it on at the right moment. And that was that. Stetson was just they a did. match. They did. They were too big, too athletic for Stetson. Uh, it was fun to be back in the land. That was Brian Murphy's first trip ever to uh, Stetson, actually, believe it or not. Yeah, did you see he wore a Stetson hat? We need to talk to I him did. about that. Well, he always, in his defense, he always wears a Stetson hat. So I don't think it was anything personal. He just likes the hat, and they make good hats. So, um, but uh, yeah, they're back at the Edmonds Center, which, uh, for better or for worse, has not changed in like over a decade. So, uh, for right. better or for worse, that's all I'm going to leave it as that. Um, I thought the UCF came out, especially in the second half, with a good defensive intensity. Uh, they played a smart game. They, they they took high percentage plays, took advantage of the size. Stetson didn't have a kid taller than six nine. Um, I thought they That's guarded what the perimeter. When you're in the Atlantic oh. Sun Conference, I hate saying it, Correct. but it's true. Uh, no, it was a good win, and I, I liked how they they're, they're coming along. I know in talking to Chad Brown after the game, they're trying to, the guys are trying to develop that killer instinct. Uh, and I think you saw that a little bit in the second half. Interestingly, I asked Coach Dawkins here about the defense. And, and and Coach Dawkins was not happy with the defense in the first half, but was in the second half. I wasn't too happy with it in the first half. I thought uh, we weren't as good 
defensively is, is I wanted us to be. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier with that last comment. And uh, the second half defense was as good as it's been all year. I think the whole team had 20 points, I believe, in the second half. But, you know, I had to give out, you know, guys a, a lot of credit. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of focus to do that. And they, uh, they were able to do that for 20 minutes tonight. Well, there you heard it. There you go, Jeff. Coach Dawkins after the game and uh, wasn't pleased with the 40 minutes, but he was pleased with the second half in particular. And I think this team is, you know, growing and learning how to play with each other. I like the fact that they're not happy about the way that they played it. And, and it's funny how they say that they weren't happy with the, basically the start. And it was kind of a slow start. But then you know, look at the box score and UCF shot 62% from the field in the first half. Actually shot under 50% in the second half. Did not shoot well from three-point range. One of seven in the second compared to five of eight in the third. Or, or five of eight in the first half. But uh, still was able to pull away and uh, come away with the W. Um, credit to uh, Stetson for trying to hang around. But, that, but this is what I thought was really impressive, Eric. Second half, UCF holds Stetson to six of 29 from the field. That's 21%. Yep. That yeah, was an amazing defensive performance. Very strong, and it always starts defensively with Taco Fall. He, he, he's a presence. Uh, you can't – no easy baskets inside. Uh, he was dominant. He, he played big. You know, and I had a chance to chat with him after the game, Jeff, and I asked him uh, about this team coming together from a defensive standpoint, especially some of the new guys. You know, this was a dominant defense. But, I mean, this defense carried this team last season. And, I, you know, that, that identity about the defense. Uh, I had a chance here to talk to Taco Fall about – how he feels about this team coming along and, and really getting accustomed to playing with each other. College, is, college game is different. Um, definitely the way we play. So um, it was definitely going to take some time for the guys to adjust. Um, even some of the retro guys that did play last year, they haven't played basketball the whole year. So coming in, they have to get more good experience for us. It's, it's really strong. Where do you feel your team is from a defensive standpoint as a unit right now? I know there's a room for improvement, but are you happy with the progress you guys have been making? Yeah, I mean, you always got to be happy with the progress. There's always an accept to take. Um, like Coach said, he sees it. Right? So we, we, we are able to do it. So um, we just got to keep, keep, keep the course. Ah, good to chat with Taco Fall after the game, among others. And, and, and by the way, it's still good, remarkable. Good chat. Good postgame chat couple questions quickly, you know, got to get you on know. the bus here. We all got to get out of the land. Um, you know, it's amazing to me. So, so full disclosure. So we did the post game outside the locker room upstairs and you know, this. you've been to the Edmund center, mm-hmm. it's a very old arena. Taco falls seven, six, <laughs> which it, it's still like, I, I feel like a dwarf, you know, and I'm like trying to talk to him and I get nervous though, because uh, uh, there's not a lot of room there. Like it's so big that I'm worried that he's going to hit like the, the, the roof, you know, yeah. uh, the, the, I mean, go beast, be careful with your head, please. Uh, like I'm being like a child or something. I don't know. Watch it's just out, a, man. The, the, the so low roof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I'm worried about it, but he, you know, he knows what he's doing, but he's just an impressive uh, presence there. And uh, I, I, I think, I think he doesn't get enough credit for being, one of the leaders on the team from a from a standpoint. I mean, I really believe this, Jeff, and being around this team, um, there there just is a di- and and again, this is why sometimes num you know people go by the numbers. Numbers doesn't tell you the whole story. You the team is more confident. It sounds redundant, but it's true. They're more confident, especially on the defensive side of the ball, when he's there. 
because he knows that if there's a mistake, he can erase it. Right. Um, and there's, and I think that builds confidence with these guys. And I don't think it's an accident. In the last couple of years, this team, when tacos in and when they're not, they're a completely different team, especially on the defensive side of the, of the court. Oh yeah. And, and, and <laughs> what a luxury when you're seven foot six, you know, my fear is always like what happens, you know, when he decides to leave, you know I mean? Eventually right. he's, eventually he's one way or the other, he's not going to be here anymore. And then do we go back to being a pedestrian team? Because obviously seven foot six, you know, athletic centers don't grow on trees. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I was really impressed with just it, the second half, like you talked about, it, you know, he does make it easier for everybody. Hey, don't worry about it. If you make a mistake, they're going to have to deal with me. Stetson obviously being a team from the Atlantic Sun Conference is woefully undersized. Um you know, compared to what they were doing. I mean, and it's and it's easy for them to sort of in the first half to just kind of like try and take it at you, but then all of a sudden reality does set in, um, and I think that certain that certainly did happen uh, in the case of this game. So, uh, one more game for UCF um, before conference play starts. That's this uh, Thursday, this December twenty first. Probably actually, um, many of you are going to be listening to this. We'll be listening to it on Thursday, December twenty first. So that's tonight, seven p.m. Uh, against South Carolina State at CFE Arena. Uh, the game will be televised on ESPN3. And then it's conference playtime. Uh, two days after Christmas, Wednesday, December 27th, um, off to off to uh, Dallas to play SMU to start the conference season. They're starting the conference season before New Year's Day. So, um, that's, where, uh, so that's what UCF is looking at right there. But, hey, you beat South Carolina State at home. You get through Christmas. Nine and three, and you start conference play with a 750 win percentage. That's pretty doggone good, especially when you, you know, considering that you haven't had BJ Taylor and you lost Aubrey Dawkins at the start of the year. So, um, really a good, I don't think you could ask for a much better start from UCF, um, at this point. Uh, just take care of, take care of South Carolina State and. Yep. Tough because you got uh, don't look ahead because yeah SMU is very good that'll be a big big test uh, in Dallas and uh, we'll probably uh, record after that basketball game and recap it probably yeah. next week most likely um, women's basketball they are coming off of a split on the West Coast uh, Sunday they knocked off UC Davis boy they're tra- traveling all the way out West California they beat UC Davis by seven uh, sixty two to uh, fifty five that was this past Sunday. Um, credit to, uh, uh, to Massini Kaba. She scored 18 points, pulled down, uh, six rebounds, also 16 points for, uh, KK Wright to go with three assists and Aaliyah Gregory with a double figure performance, 10 and six, 14 boards for Nia Schuler, uh, to give UCF the victory, uh, over UC Davis. By the way, uh, Kaba was nine of 11 from the field, an impressive performance, um, on the inside. Uh, so UCF gets that first victory over UC Davis. Um, but uh, on the flip side of that, uh, UCF comes back, uh, and they have to go to Stockton, California, which is out you know, actually east of San Francisco to play the University of the Pacific. Uh, and uh, we were watching that earlier before we were recording. Game gets pushed to overtime. Knights had an eight-point lead heading into the fourth. Pacific ties it on a on a rebound Scramble out to the three-point line, turn around, fade away three. They that ties the game, 
and uh, and despite 22 points from KK Wright, uh, Pacific gets the victory in overtime, 78 to uh, 74. Um, it was really a, a tough break. I mean, you know, it's not an excuse, but it is a reason. I mean, you're out west, out in California, um, about as far away from home as you can possibly be. Um, you're coming off the win. Now, four Knights were in double figures in this game. K.K. Wright, Aaliyah Gregory, Aaliyah Gregory uh, uh, Zakia Saunders, and, uh, and uh, Masini Kaba. But, um, you know, it's still a bummer. You, you almost, you almost, you come within a fadeaway three-pointer of going undefeated on basically a West Coast road trip. And uh, and that was a real bummer, despite, you know, the Knights shooting um, almost 70% in the first half. They kind of came back to earth in the second half, shot 35%. Um, Pacific, meanwhile, shot uh, 50%, 51% from the game, for the game, and, and that was enough to edge the Knights out. But um, still, pretty impressive performance for UCF women's basketball is right now, um, as they finish up their non-conference slate, they are 7-5. and five. Um uh, with that loss, uh, with the loss to Pacific, they are home for Davidson on Thursday, December twenty eighth. So that's next week. They've got basically a whole week off to recover from that uh, West Coast road trip. You and I were watching this Pacific game before we started recording, Elo, and it was just you got the I got the sense that they kind of that they did kind of run out of gas a little bit. Well, that three not getting the rebound on the first missed three, and then the the you know they get the rebound, they go back to the three point line, hit the three to send to overtime. Then at that point, Pacific had the momentum. Tough because, you know, you mentioned the win they had on Sunday against UC Davis. Prior to that, remember they played at Boston uh, earlier last week, yeah, and they won the right. game at, right at Boston. So they would have been a three and zero road trip there uh, in two different coasts. Um, yeah, you know, so I, I two different regions because you know, they go all right. the way up in the northeast and then all the way out west. Correct. So Coach Abe won't be happy with the finish of that game, closing out uh, the Pacific game. But uh, you know the team's getting healthier, and I think also a good bonding. A lot of times coaches will schedule these type of games like this. The the this schedule for the team bonding, and this team spent a lot of time together uh, over the last week or two. And uh, you know they got another one as you mentioned at home against Davidson. Uh, and then before you know it, they'll open conference play against a very good Temple team that made the NCAAs last year and was the second, uh, finished second in the regular season uh, or three, you know, top three in the conference last year. They're going to open with them at home on the on the 30th. So uh, they got to fine tune some things and get ready for conference. You know, I, I actually, as between the two teams, which one do you think is actually better set up for a run in the conference right now, men's or women's? It, 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 it's really a it's tough, a tough one call. to answer. Because, well, I, I need to know what the answer is on B.J. Taylor's status. Yeah. I mean, that's the wild card. When does he return? Uh, when he because because when he returns, there's a bit of an adjustment period there. And then you know how quickly can he catch up to speed? So, um, I would almost have to say the women's team by default, from the standpoint that I think for the most part. Uh, you know, they've been battling some injuries themselves, but, you know, they've got their mark, their marquee players still around them. Whereas with UCF, I don't know. You know, it depends when BJ is BJ going to be back next week or the week after. We don't know. So I would have to give the edge for the women's team until BJ gets back because, you know, there's going to be an adjustment period when BJ gets back. So uh, that that's 
kind of my concern from the men's side. That's why I might give the edge to the women's side. Well, looking at the standings for uh, men's and women's basketball, start I'll start with women. Obviously, UConn um, is is uh, is is way out in front of everybody right now uh, at nine and no. USF is off to a good start at nine and two. Houston's at nine and three. Temple at eight and three. UCF is in a cluster with Cincy and ECU at seven and five. So those are the overall records. We know what we're going to get from there. Um, SMU's off to a difficult start at five and six. Uh, although they're not to be trifled with as they start the season. Um, I think that UCF's path right now on the women's side looks, you know, uh, UConn notwithstanding, a little bit slightly more favorable. Um, in the American on the men's side, boy, it is a logjam. You got 10-2 and two Cincy, 10-2 and two Houston, 9-2 Wichita, Wichita, by the way, who's nationally ranked, uh, ten and three SMU, eight and three Memphis, eight and three Tulane. This league got tough in a hurry on the men's side, didn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, oh, by the way, I open. forgot to mention. Forgive me for interrupting, but I forgot to mention. You know, UCF and Tulane are tied, and Memphis are tied at eight and three. Right behind them, Temple seven and three, UConn seven and three. <laughs> yeah, no, and Joe Lenardi has four teams in from the league on uh, his early projections, so. Uh, the men's is stacked, no question about it. And that's why I'm worried about the men's team because they're not at full strength without BJ Taylor. So uh, they're not at full yeah. strength with BJ Taylor. You know, Even considering then, that, considering that we could, we could have had Aubrey Dawkins, but the bottom the bottom line the is correct. And the bottom line is, I think both teams are going to have to win on defense, and uh, especially you know, and uh, so we'll see. I mean, we're going to learn a lot about the women's team. They're going to open right away with Temple. That's a big game. Yeah. Uh, that you know, I think you look at the you know UConn. Just just give them the conference title. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but after that, you got Call us when they don't win it. <laughs> uh, it could be a while. Uh, but you got USF's a top twenty-five team once again. Coach Fernandez knows what he's doing over there, and then Temple's very good too. So, um, you know, that's where UCF is kind of in that mix there from two to five, two to four range. And we're not even talking about a team like Cincinnati, for example, or even a Houston, who's been a very pleasant surprise so far this year. So. But uh, I would, yeah. That that until BJ Taylor gets back, it's it's uh, it's a challenge for the men's side, no question. Because the men's conference this year, it might be the strongest that it's been since the American is, uh, you know, was created in, in men's basketball. And remember when the league was created, it was supposed to be the power was supposed to be basketball. I think football yeah. has kind of surprised people, and I think some people have been disappointed to some extent with the basketball conference to this point. That's why the Wichita State edition was huge for the league from that standpoint. And you've seen the, you know, you've seen how it's paid off already. You see Wichita State's ranked top 10 all year. They're on national TV a lot. But Cincinnati, they beat UCLA over the weekend in L.A. on the game that was on CBS. Temple's off to a good start, as you mentioned. Uh, SMU's the defending conference champions. Let's not forget them. So it's a stacked league, man. It's a stacked league. And the good news, though, for UCF is because it's a stacked league, you're going to get opportunities to get quality wins. And if you get quality wins for the resume, that improves your chances to make the NCAA. So that's the good news uh, compared to back in the days when you were in CUSA and the A-Sun where there were not a lot of quality games. Right, right. So, well, that's where we stand right now. Don't forget, you know, those games coming up. You can check everything out on UCFnights.com. For all the latest updates. By the way, I'm going to be doing some PA for women's basketball pretty soon, Eric Lopez. Uh, really? Yes, I will be back on the mic 
for the next two uh, home games. I will be uh, I'm scheduled to do the um, Davidson game and then the Temple game. So Thursday and Saturday. So um, yeah, and obviously I want to encourage everyone to come on out and uh, and 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 come see that game because both games because it's going to be critical, especially that Temple game to get the t- get UCF women's basketball back up to a, a good start. So. All right, let's finish this thing up here, Eric Lopez, uh, as we wrap it up here uh, with Christmas holiday right around the corner. Just want to wish everybody a belated happy Hanukkah if you celebrate Hanukkah. Merry Christmas if you celebrate Christmas. Obviously, Merry Christmas coming up uh, this coming Monday. What do you have uh, going on uh, this week heading into next? I'm just going to enjoy the rest of my birthday and and extend it all the way to Christmas and then enjoy Christmas. That's what I've got. (laughs) That's all i got. We've got, uh, by the way, um, the obviously everyone knows you know my son and I were making the road trip up to Atlanta for the game. Um, I got a great guest coming up uh, early next week. Be on the lookout for this podcast uh, because we're going to do a little UCF fans guide to the Peach Bowl in Atlanta thing for New Year's and everything. And uh, I got a really good surprise guest for you. So I'm gonna so I'm not going to tell you who just yet, but just. Be on the lookout for next week's show. Um, thanks once again to Jimmy Frizzell for his time. Um, cheers to him and, and, and all the success that he's had after football. And uh, he, like you heard in the interview, he'll be up in Atlanta. So I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure if, you, if you're running around UCF circles, you probably run into him. Uh, thanks again to uh, Brian Murphy and, uh, and to Derek Warden for their hard work once again. Uh, as well on blackandgoldbanneret.com. Make sure you follow them uh, on Twitter at spokes underscore Murphy and underscore DS Warden uh, on Twitter. And uh, don't forget to follow us at UCF underscore Banneret. You can follow me at Jeff underscore Sharon. Follow Eric at Eric Lopez Elo. Also hit us up at facebook.com slash blackandgoldbanneret and blackandgoldbanneret.com. Subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and tune in. And last but not least, Big thanks once again to uh, Sam Unger and the Sam Unger Real Estate Team. For more on Sam, visit samsellsorlando.net. samsellsorlando.net. Eric, have a Merry Christmas and a happy birthday, and uh, I'll catch you next week, brother. Same to you. Happy holidays, everybody. All right. Thanks again to you for listening once again. We appreciate you as always. Uh, And don't forget to tell your friends to uh, subscribe and listen as well. For Eric Lopez, I'm Jeff Sharon. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Merry Christmas. We'll catch you next week as we get ready for the Peach Bowl.